Let's open God's Word to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're beginning chapter 5 today. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament and chapter 5. Our text is the first seven verses, and we'll actually use verse 7 as a pivot next week. We'll start there and continue on. Let's hear the Holy Word of God. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we grow, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless all who hear it, believe it, and obey it. Amen. Amen. This morning we begin a new chapter in this letter and see uh, the argument of the apostle. And he's going to bring up life and death and that whole transition. Sounds a little uncomfortable. Our culture is taken up with comfort, isn't it? Our culture is taken up with comfort. We don't like to talk about hard subjects. And we enjoy our free time. And in fact, for most people, uh, the goal of working is they're working for the weekend. They're working simply for the pleasure that will follow rather than finding pleasure in their labors. Our culture is such a comfort-driven culture that they've even changed one of the great family recreations of the summer. To what do I refer? Camping. Let me just ask a question. Raise your hand. Have you ever been camping, like in a tent or in a portable? Okay, good. That's a great sign. It gives me hope. We know what it's like to be out there in the outdoors and cook over an open fire, perhaps, or or be near a stream or a mountain. Camping, it's a great thing. It restores a lot of our, our, our feelings to be out in God's creation. But our culture, with its drive for comfort, in this world has changed camping into, get this, glamping. G-L-A-M-P-I-N-G. Glamping. What is that? That's a combination of two words, glamorous and camping. Normally those two words do not go together. Glamping. If you check Wikipedia, it says glamping describes a style of camping with amenities and in some cases resort style services, not usually associated with traditional camping. Glamping has become particularly popular with 21st century tourists seeking luxuries of hotel accommodations alongside the escapism and recreation of nature. There's even a glamping.com. I'm not endorsing that. I just saw it on my Google search. And it's interesting, their logo, they take the A of glamping and the M of glamping and make it look like mountains. 
So they're trying to draw in your adventurous spirit. Their webpage promo says that they have researched the best glamping tent accommodations throughout the world. These glamping tents are a far cry from the do-it-yourself tent in a bag. They say glamping tents offer amenities such as comfortable beds, physical wooden and structure beds, and in most cases they say ensuite, if you like that word, ensuite bathroom facilities. My tent never had that. And they said uh, when you're glamping, there's no tent to pitch. All you have to do is relax and enjoy the unique experience provided by these luxury glamping tents. Why glamping? Why, why is our culture moved in that direction? Because of our love for comfort? Do you think there are some Christians that are into spiritual glamping? Some Christians that uh, are uncomfortable with the difficulties and challenges of the normal Christian life that we try to tweak and make it more endurable. We kind of deny the realities of the Christian life that not everybody likes us and not everybody agrees with us and sometimes doing the right thing is hard and we feel like pioneers and strangers in the land. I think some Christians do. Because the daily Christian life is not like clamping, it's more like regular camping. And even in today's Bible passage, the Apostle has introduced that idea by talking about our life as Christians in this world as tenting. And he uses the word tent three times. So it's an image he wants to remind us of so that the mindset we have is biblical And the mindset is, it's like camping, not glamping. That's the reality. And my friends, the Bible always speaks clearly about reality. The Bible is not pie in the sky by and by. It talks about the realities of life here, God's purposes for us here, and yes, our inheritance in heaven. Oh, we have something awaiting us. And hopefully... This text of scripture and today's looking at it will cause you to say, I can't wait to move on. Why does Paul bring up this topic as we begin chapter 5? He wants us to see the glory of the life to come, the glory that's on the other side of dying, which will help us have courage here and now. He wants us to connect the two, as we will see. He continues to tell us what it is to walk by faith and not by sight. And for the Christian to have these thoughts of heaven will help you here and now. Let's look at uh, the text before us, these first seven verses, under three headings. And it, it naturally falls. We'll talk about the earthly tent. And then we'll talk about uh, Uh, what God is preparing, because there's much on what God is doing, and then we'll focus at the end about walking by faith in this world. So first, this this tenting concept. You see all three uses of the word as it comes up? He wants us to think of tenting. He describes the human body as a tent, our earthly dwelling. Well, what's your dwelling? I'm not in a mansion yet. There's a mansion for me in glory. Right now I'm under this canvas or polyester cloth 
with a couple of aluminum poles and some duct tape, and that's where I'm at. He talks about our human bodies and reminds us primarily that they're not permanent. Tent here refers to a movable temporary dwelling, something that's transient, something that's vulnerable. And even if your tent is made of high-quality canvas, which Paul will, would have worked, his, his vocation uh, uh, for income earning, apart from being an apostle, was to be a tent maker. He knows this stuff inside out. He had business because tents had to be replaced. Tents had to be repaired far more frequently than households. That's the contrast here with the, the house that is being prepared ahead But he's been emphasizing, even in the last chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, he said we're jars of clay, reminding us of our fragility, the commonness of our life, and the care we should take. Now the things that matter are inside of us, the spiritual realities. In chapter 4, verse 16, he mentioned again, just as chapter 4 was ending, our outer self is wasting away. We are a well-worn tent. Ever been in a tent where it hasn't been, its waterproofing hasn't been updated? Oh yeah, it can rain inside a tent. He's making this point. Human bodies are not permanent. And for the human body, what's the end of its run? It's death. So he's openly talking about death here. If our earthly home is destroyed, what is he talking about? He's talking about our death. He'd been talking about affliction and how he's faced death before, but now he's just saying, hey, when it happens, we believers have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We'll get to that. But the emphasis first is that this tent is not permanent. Death will come to us all. I saw an interesting quote about death as I researched this week. Uh, William Dyer said, were it not for sin, death had never had a beginning. And were it not for death, sin would never have had an ending. Death is not part of God's good creation. It came in with the fall of man into sin. Death is the consequence to sin. But God even uses death to undo the curse of sin, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross so our human bodies are not permanent and secondly our human bodies face many frustrations as Paul speaks of this tent this human earthly dwelling notice what he says at least twice in this passage about the realities here and now Um, in verse 2 for in this tent okay we groan we groan he says it out loud We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And he says it again uh, later on in verse 4. While we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. He's basically saying that we Christians, especially in our human form, face many frustrations. We, We are vulnerable. There are pains in this broken world. He owns that. But here I want to point out, because one of the applications, when we get to the end of the sermon, I'm going to say groaning's okay, but I'll have an asterisk. Okay, we'll explain how groaning is okay. 
here we have to understand what this word means. It means to sigh or groan inwardly. And, and frustration isn't necessarily sinful, but it's this response to the difficulties that are faced, a response to the circumstance that acknowledges it, its difficulty, acknowledges its pain. In the Bible, there's something else people do that is sinful. Groaning is not sinful. Murmuring is sinful. Do you remember that from the Old Testament? Murmuring. A lot of people died because they murmured against God. What is that word? And again, the Old Testament would be Hebrew. In the Greek, there is a a, a word for grumbling and, and murmuring. It is to utter secret contempt. To murmur is not simply to react, but to rebuke. To murmur is says, boy, this is really a lousy situation that God put me in. What does he think he's doing? Murmuring. It's a condemned sin in the Bible. And a lot of murmuring is done quietly, and other people might not even hear it. But it's a sin, and if you've been a murmurer, you need to repent. But the Bible here says that we groan, and Paul owns it here. Groaning, oh, the hard work. I, <laughs> I was helping with the construction of the new metal shed. And I'm glad other guys didn't take pictures. But when I was trying to get down on the ground to do the low parts, I'm thankful that Andrew did many of those and, and Luke, uh, you know, getting up and down from those knees, you could probably hear a little, <laughs> as I try to lift my girth up and down. That's just a groan. I'm facing the, the challenge and responding to it. It's not murmuring. This very word for groaning is used by the Lord Jesus. That helps us see that groaning itself isn't sinful. For instance, here's a couple of verses. Mark 7, 34. Jesus was faced with someone who needed to be healed. Jesus, looking up to heaven, he sighed. Same word for groan. He sighed and said to him, Ephathra, that is, be opened. Jesus saw this man was blind part of the broken world we live in. Jesus was frustrated, even all creation groans. He says, oh, Father, what a mess sin has made of creation. Nevertheless, he works something good. Or in Mark chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Exact same word is groan here. And said, what does this, why does this generation seek a sign Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The spiritual condition of the world made Jesus groan. All creation groans and awaits redemption. Human bodies face many frustrations and we express that. The Bible's clear about that. So here's the, here's the point. The Christian life is not groan free. The Christian life is not frustration free. There are troubles. Paul owns that. But he's trying to get us some help with these groanings, with this situation we're in now, by causing us to look ahead. Here's the third point as we look at our tents. Our human bodies in all, this, all these ways provoke our longings for heaven. This is the turning point. We're in these tents, 
And we know something better is coming. So why do we groan? We groan because we understand what sin has done. We understand the difficulties of this world. It's so sad. Encountering broken homes, broken marriages, trashed careers, a a, a successful father and husband who becomes an addict and loses his job, loses his wife and kids, and he's living on the street. We, We groan. It's, oh, what a mess. I hear prayer requests from people in the church, far more than are shared publicly. What some people are carrying, how burdensome are even in our congregation, and I groan. Lord, why? Our human condition provokes longings for heaven. In verse 2 here in chapter 5, Paul writes, For in this tent we groan, longing, something else is going on with the groaning, right? Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 2 is a gem. It says it's okay to groan as long as you have an increased desire for what's ahead. Don't let your life just be groaning. Nobody likes that. It's not going to be good for you or others. But mix that with the truth and, and let your Spirit, desire, what's up ahead? Derek Prime in his commentary said, the prospect of glory increases our desire to put off this earthly tent. And every time we get frustrated with the earthliness and we groan and we know how hard it is, how to persevere in life, it reminds us that there will be a day and a place without those obstacles, without those hindrances, without those pains, there will be no tears, sorrowful tears in heaven. Tears of joy, I think, are allowed. But the common understanding of tears for weeping, for sorrow, not in heaven. There's a great change. And the very fact that we're groaning kind of hits the the button on the dashboard of our minds to say, hey, wouldn't it be great to move on? I can't wait to move on to glory. To see my loved ones in Christ that have gone before. To be in a place without pain. To see Jesus face to face. Do you have such longings for heaven? When Paul wrote to the Philippians, and most people know Philippians as an epistle of joy, right? Remember what Paul said in in chapter 3? He shares his mindset. What kind of thinking promotes that joy? Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21 Our citizenship is in heaven. He's looking there by faith. He's looking there. He's writing Philippians from a jail cell. Do you remember that? Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's a transformation coming. Don't just strive to do some glamping here by fixing your life and trying to deny these realities. Just go ahead and set your sights on the mansions in glory and how Christ will transform you and bring you into the presence of the Father. The Father loves us and he sent Christ to redeem us, to have a relationship with us and bring us to himself. And we'll be there for eternity. All our weaknesses, all our groanings should trigger those thoughts. 
When a Christian faces death, he should trigger these thoughts and this hope of heaven and the transformation that will bring us there. But the groaning and the longings are simultaneous. Verse 2 is complicated, isn't it? We're groaning, but we're longing. We, we, we know we're going to have this really huge inheritance. But it's not yet. I, I continue to be impressed as I study the writings of Doug Kelly, a theologian from the South. And in his little lecture on this text, he, he made a great observation. He says this, Christians have roots in two directions. Roots in two directions. We have roots in the past that help to define us. But the born-again child of God, he says, is also rooted in and, and defined by the future. He has roots in heaven. We're growing in Christ-likeness. We're growing in our desire to be with Christ. Paul could say to live is Christ because he's born again, but to die is gain. We have roots in both directions. One of the evidences that you're a Christian isn't only that you have roots in the saving work of Christ and you've been forgiven and adopted, but that you know where Christ is taking you and you have roots in heaven. You have a destination. With my GPS, sometimes I just turn it on in the car while I'm driving and I just like glancing at the map. I haven't put in a destination. I'm just driving. And it tells me stuff. That's fine. But I also like it when you put the destination in and as you get closer, you see the little checkered flag waving. Do I win anything when I get there? I've made it. Christian, you have roots in Christ's work in you here, but also what is yet to come. So let's move on to the second heading here in our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We see that God is preparing our heavenly home. The heavenly home, the heavenly house, right? We have a home here and we'll have a home there. Here it's called a tent, there it's called a house. Specific word, a very common word in Greek, just oikos for house. But heaven will be an eternal house for believers. That's the first contrast here. Paul is using very intentional metaphors here between tent and house. Just as in the Old Testament there was a difference between the tabernacle, the portable temple that had to get set up and put down, set up and put down, and set up and put down, and travel and move and set it up again, versus the temple that would be built in Jerusalem. A real contrast. And Paul's saying, we're in a tent now, but our heavenly home will be an eternal house in heaven. It's described in verse 1 as a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Oh, I'd love to just camp on each little phrase there and, and just ponder with you. What, is it, what does it mean? Well, first of all, where's the location? You know, when you're buying a house, what do they say matters most? Location, location, location. I, I, what does that really mean? But it's important. Where is our heavenly house? It's in heaven. It's in heaven. It's not just here. So again, we see that our longings have to raise our eyes to where God is building our permanent house. It's in heaven, and it's a house not made with hands. What is he telling us? 
Oh, it's something beyond what you can imagine. The ancient world had some lovely architecture, and you know what? A lot of it is still around. I'm so discouraged by modern architecture where, where they build a stadium and five years later they have to tear it down. There aren't too many buildings that are old in the West because we don't build them to last for centuries. Our eternal house, built not with hands, it's a work of God. And it's a spiritual house. We need to think of that more than the physical aspects of it. Eternal in the heavens. It's interesting, too, the way that uh, this word house is used. A tent is usually, well, I don't want to dwell too much on the the difference in the terms, but a house, oikos, uh, became the word for household, uh, and you were defined by the people that were with you in your household, in your dwelling tent, not It's a smaller dwelling. A house is a bigger dwelling. So Paul, I think, is by using the word house, even causing us to think of the spiritual family we will gather with. Nevertheless, as Barnett says, Paul is affirming that death in no way deprives the believer of the glory of the coming age. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, if we die, when we die, We will not be homeless. Christian, you hear that? I don't know how many of you heads of households uh, sometimes worry. If I lose my job, where would we live if I can't pay for the house? Or I'm facing retirement. I can't afford to stay in this, but where am I going to go? Homelessness is not a a, a day-in, day-out fear for most of us, but it's in the back of our minds. It touches our sense of well-being and security. Not a problem when you think of the spiritual house and spiritual homelessness ain't going to happen for Christians. Death will not keep us from our heavenly home. It will bring us to our heavenly home. So heaven will be an eternal house for believers. Secondly, heaven will be without fears and frustrations. The contrast is not merely the dwelling, but the contrast is when we get there, the sighing and groaning will be done. When we get there, we will not be anxious. We will not be naked. We will not be uncertain. Naked is is a parallel metaphor, right? We have two sets of metaphors at work here. The housing metaphors, construction. And the clothing metaphor, he mentions naked and being found naked and nobody wants to be found naked. What does that part mean? We have an awareness that we will be before God in the life to come. And to be naked is a reminder as in Adam and Eve, hiding in the bushes, will we be guilty? Will we be vulnerable? Will we be under the wrathful eye of our God? No, we will be clothed. As we transition from this tent to our heavenly home, we will be without fears and frustrations as Christians. Paul would write a a similar truth to the Galatians when uh, he's trying to clarify that Christians will never be naked before God, as it were, caught in our human sin and fallenness. Galatians 3, 26, 27 For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
And Paul in his letters talks about putting off and putting on the clothing that we have been supplied in Christ. Theologically, we like to talk about being saved by wearing the righteous robes of Christ. Clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Paul's addressing fears of death. Paul's addressing our curiosity, our groans, and he's saying heaven will be without these fears and frustrations. And to top it all off, when he gets to chapter 5, you might not have seen this coming. He says that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of heaven. It's the earnest. The Holy Spirit gift is, is the down payment, the giving of that third person of the Trinity who dwells with each and every believer. Verse 5 says, He who has prepared for us this very thing is God. So Paul's saying it's not just what I'm saying, this is what God is doing. And who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He's given us the keys. He's given us the title deed. He's given us uh, the, uh, the exact thing we need here and now the Holy Spirit the person of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee can we just pause for a second and see how generous God is that he just doesn't tell us through a prophet or through a scripture or a piece of paper that we have an inheritance how does God tell us he sends the spirit into believers he dwells with us now Here's a really poor example. You got a couple of people at your house, a couple of different cars, and you're all going out to eat. And the people from out of town don't know where the restaurant is. So what do you do? You say, oh, well, one of my kids will ride with you, or my wife will ride with you in case you can't follow me all the way there. And with someone who knows the way with you in the car, we'll all get to the restaurant for our celebratory dinner. My friends, the Spirit of God indwells each and every believer to ride with us to lead us to prepare us and to bring us to heaven that's a tremendous gift it's not just a map it's not just the street address so you can use your gps god himself is with his people the great shepherd said i will send you another counselor to be with you always the holy spirit One preacher said, through familiarity, it is possible to overlook the greatness of God's generosity in the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity and possesses all the attributes of God. He lives within us as believers and makes our bodies his temple. All to help us with that transition From the tent to heaven. Oh, I can't wait to move on. I can't wait. But it's in God's hands. Finally, this morning, we need to look at uh, how this passage ends as Paul is talking about the reality of life here and what God's prepared for us there. He adds this potent argument to talk about how Christians walk by faith and not by sight. Let's see it in its context here verses 6 and 7. So we are always of good courage, for we know that while we are at home in this body, sigh, 
we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And verse 8, which we'll see next week. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. Why is that added here? Because we understand the here and the there. And we get to there, not by walking by sight, but by walking by faith. And in the here and now, we get the help of God walking by faith. Let's even back up one step to to observe that the non-believer who walks only by sight, who has no faith, he fears death. He fears facing God. If he would admit it, if he'd be honest. Doug Kelly, again, he has a sense of humor as well as a lot of insight, pointed out when it comes to people talking about death, He said back in the 19th century, it was fine to talk about death, but not sex. In the 20th century, indeed, in the 21st century, it's fine to talk about sex, but not death. Because the world is afraid, deathly afraid of dying. And I would submit to you without becoming political or without entering the COVID discussion at length, One of the reasons that our world has so reacted, some would say overreacted, to the coronavirus is this fear of death. And perhaps many Christians have underreacted because they don't fear death. The non-believer fears death. Why? Because this life is where they find their blessing. They're into glamping. Uh, They say things like, uh, you only live once, so grab all the gusto you can here and now. They're not living for tomorrow. They're not living to give account to God. People don't like to think of death or eternity. It's an uncertain thing. They see death as final, so they fight it. Christian, let me ask you, is death final? Is that the last thing? No, it's the doorway. It's the threshold to heaven. As Paul said, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We don't pursue death, but neither do we fear it. Its sting has been taken away. We will die unless the Lord returns and we're caught up with him in the air. We will die. But the sting is removed because of the work of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about how the resurrection undergirds our faith. And Christ has removed the sting, and we can celebrate that. But non-believers have nothing to celebrate there. They walk by sight. Christian, don't fall into that pattern. Don't strive to only live in this world and live for this world. Live for the world to come. Verse 6, on the way to walking by faith, said, We are always of good courage. We know. We know these things. I would turn that combination more clearly this way. Our confidence springs from this knowledge. The Bible says we are always of good courage, and then it goes on to say about what we know. That courage stands on the knowledge, the things we know. It stands on our faith. Remember, faith isn't a leap into the dark. Faith is a step into the light. What God has said, we take it and believe it. What we know, Christ lived, died, and rose again. 
God has promised us life in Christ. What we know gives us confidence. Thirdly, our walk by faith is a walk by faith in God with a future with Christ. Christians, we notice how it assumes. It's not an exhortation in verse 7. It's not saying, therefore, walk by faith. It's, It's assuming that the Christian walks by faith. If you know Christ and you're known by Christ, if you know this world is not our home, we're passing through, we're sojourners to our heaven, Uh, Our citizenship is in heaven. If we know these things, we walk here and now by faith. That should be the reality. A Christian is known by their walk of faith. Well, let me rush on to some concluding thoughts here and try to draw these things together. Three closing exhortations, three applications. I already tipped my hand on the first one. It's okay to groan, comma, right? There's more coming. It's okay to groan, comma, while keeping an eye on heaven. As you groan, may you also long for heaven. As you feel the weight and the burdens of this life, remember, always remember the life to come. Remember what Paul said in chapter 4 it was. about the, the weight of glory. Is it chapter 4 or chapter 3? I didn't underline it. Here it is, chapter 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Paul's simply repeating that. We know the reality. We know what needs to change and what's ahead for us. And that these afflictions are preparing us for that. So we look to what is unseen because we're looking by faith, not by sight. That defines the Christian. The Christian is one who knows new life in Christ, who has new life in Christ, who awaits Eternal life in Christ. We close this morning with the words of Christ from John 14. I almost always, without fail, read these words at a funeral. Sometimes at a graveside where the body of a loved one has just been interred. In a room where a casket is usually stretched out behind me as I speak to the living relatives as they mourn. Those that have faith are helped by these words. Those who do not have faith are summoned to consider Christ by these words. For in them Jesus gives us truth. He gives us a command. He speaks from his heart to ours. John 14 verses 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am. You know the way to where I am going. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for these extended thoughts that you put into the heart and mind of Paul and put into the Bible, your holy word. That we would have such an understanding of the world to come that we would face the destruction of our earthly tent with great confidence and courage. That we would walk differently here and not make our heaven on earth, but to walk and to serve here and now with an eye to what you have made for us in heaven. Oh, Father, may each and every Christian here be so caught up with what you are doing and what lies ahead that we can't wait to move on. But may we be faithful in our service here and now and helped here and now by the truth of heaven that is yet to come. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking to us these clear words of comfort and for your promise that you will come and take us to the place that you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.